Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So I think this week is one of the best weeks out of the year. Baseball is in full swing. It's the basketball playoffs, hockey playoffs, NFL draft. I don't think it gets much better than that, specifically if you're a sports fan. But over the last few days, I've been glued to my TV and to Twitter trying to keep up with the NFL draft. And I know this is pretty lame, but as a Redskins fan, it doesn't matter if it's the draft, the preseason, the regular season playoffs, if we ever eventually make the playoffs again. If the Redskins are involved, I am involved. So I can't help but watch the draft. And for those of you who don't know, if you're like new and you're not a huge fan of football, the draft is seven rounds. It's 256 picks. And people watch other people choose players to play a sport that you will eventually watch on TV. The last player picked was actually a Redskin this year. It's called Mr. Irrelevant because the odds of him making a team are practically zero. But this pick actually ends up getting a parade because they want to celebrate the fact that he's irrelevant. And so for three days, people are paid to analyze 18 to 22-year-olds and tell everyone why they won't be good at football. And we watch. And the NFL draft is exciting because no matter what team you root for, you have an interest in it. If you're a Redskins fan, you always walk away disappointed. If you're a Ravens fan, you walk away with a false hope that you're going to make the playoffs. If you're a Patriots fan, you didn't know the draft was happening because you only root for them when they're in the Super Bowl. And this week I was watching, and on opening night of the draft, I, I went over to watch it with some friends. And at one point I was laying on a couch, drinking Natty Bow, eating lukewarm Pizza Hut, criticizing a 20-year-old who just got drafted by the Jets. And then I realized that something is seriously wrong with this picture. What's crazy about that is that's kind of normal. This is what we do as people. We love to an- analyze and criticize other people. We tell them why they're not good enough, why they're unqualified to play quarterback. But it isn't just the draft, we do this in life. We love to tell other people why they're unqualified as parents, unqualified as spouses, unqualified because of their age or their weaknesses or their past. And about a year ago, a video, I saw a video pop up on Facebook that kind of messed with me a little bit. And this happens from time to time, right? Facebook isn't just people talking to their phone over and over and over again. Sometimes there's some good stuff. And I saw this video, check it out. I remember watching this video and you wonder, like, how can this be true? How can people say those things, right? How can you say the Beatles wouldn't do well in show business? And so I dug around the internet a bit only to find that there are whole websites dedicated to stories of people being told they weren't good enough. There's a story about one singer who was told by the manager of a music hall that he's better off returning to Memphis and driving trucks. 
Elvis Presley sold over 600 million records. One guy was rejected from the University of Southern California School of Theater, Film, and Television three times. And Steven Spielberg has grossed $4.6 billion to the movies that he's written, directed, and produced. One guy actually had a single book that was rejected 30 times, and he ended up throwing it away. His wife found it in the trash and gave it to him and said, try one more time. Stephen King wrote Carrie and has had 50 books and over 200 short stories published. 71 of them have been made into movies or TV series. One guy was told he had a poor build, lacked great physical stature and strength, that he couldn't drive the ball downfield, and he was a system-type player who can get exposed. Tom Brady has won five Super Bowls and four MVPs. One author was told not to quit her day job. And J.K. Rowling now has a park that was created off of characters that she created, and she grossed over $650 million for the books that were rejected. So today, we're starting a brand new series called Unqualified. And this series is about how God uses broken people to do big things. And so there are two things I'm going to try to convince you throughout this series. The first is that we are broken. This shouldn't be too hard. It's on a slide, so it must be true. You know, we are all broken, if you're sitting here today and you don't feel like you have brokenness in your life, you feel like your marriage is perfect, your job is perfect, your past is perfect, you don't have fears or doubts, you've never fallen short, then, and you've never hurt someone, then this series isn't going to be for you. But to be honest, this really isn't going to be the church for you either. And thankfully, no one comes to the collective thinking that they're perfect. That's part of the reason why we're here. And all of us recognize that we have brokenness in our lives. So the second thing I'm going to try to do is convince you is that God uses broken people to do big things. That this is a pattern of God. That this is a behavior of God. That time after time after time, we see God using these broken people, these people who are unqualified, these people with messed up past and imperfect presence. And he uses them to change the world. And so my hope is that for you, even though you feel unqualified, my hope is that you walk away knowing that this is right in God's sweet spot for doing something big. And so if you feel unqualified in your relationships because of a past divorce, or you feel unqualified as a dad because you grew up in a house without a father figure who could show you the ropes, you feel unqualified because of your past addiction or your present insecurities, my hope is that this series will speak to you and show you that God only chooses to work with people who are unqualified, that God wants to do big things through you, but the question is, how? How is he going to use you to do big things in your job, in your family, in your marriage, and in your community? And to do this, each week we're actually going to read about a different person in the Bible that God uses. Someone who is broken, someone who is told they're not good enough, someone who is unqualified. And this week we're going to kick it off by talking about Paul. Paul is one of the most famous followers of Jesus. He wrote half of the books in the New Testament. In fact, he wrote one quarter of the words in the New Testament. The books he wrote were a little bit shorter, but he wrote a quarter of the New Testament. He is responsible for bringing the gospel to regions that it never touched before. It was, it was Paul's mission to bring the good news of Jesus, to talk about his resurrection to people who had never heard about it before. And because of that, we love Paul. We honor him for what he has done. For many people, he wrote your favorite Bible verse, or he wrote the one Bible verse that you do know. Many people believe that without Paul, the church wouldn't exist today. But Paul, as a person, was unqualified. So let's start from the beginning. Before Paul became Paul, before he became a world changer, he was actually called Saul. And he hated Christians. The first time Saul is mentioned is in Acts 7. And so we're going to pick up the story at the end of that. But here are some background details. 
So Jesus has died and resurrected from the dead. And a few hundred people saw him after that happened. And so they're going out telling everybody that this is the son of God, that what he promised came true. And so what's happening is actually the church is growing. That more and more people who experience Jesus in their life or are hearing about Jesus are deciding, I'm going to follow him. And so Christianity is growing and the church is growing. And because of that, there's opposition. And the people who try to stop Jesus from telling other people that he was the son of God are doing everything they can to hurt the church. They're doing everything they can to stop the church from growing. In one instance, a follower of Jesus named Stephen was performing signs and wonders on behalf of God. And the Jewish Sanhedrin, which are essentially Jewish religious leaders, they were rabbis, they didn't like it. And so they actually made up charges against him in order to bring him to court. But Stephen doesn't back down. He doesn't stop proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And when he's on trial, he actually testifies that he is a follower of Jesus, knowing full well there are consequences for that. And then he calls out the Jewish leaders saying that they resisted the Holy Spirit and he accuses them of executing Jesus. And they're not happy. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts 7, starting in verse 54. When the mem members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, furious and gnashed their teeth at him. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So the picture that Luke writes in Acts is of an angry mob rushing Stephen outside of the city so they can kill him, literally picking up and pelting him with stones as he runs away. And as the people grab their rocks, they lay their coats at the feet of a guy named Saul. And this isn't because Saul is young. This isn't because he's a kid or a coat check guy. This was out of respect. This showed Saul's authority in the situation. Saul is in the thick of this tumultuous murder of a distinguished witness of Jesus. But what he's doing is he's consenting to his death, not only doing his own part in it, but encouraging it. And this is the first time we hear about this guy named Saul, the man who will eventually lead the church's mission to the Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people. And in the meantime, this first introduction shows that he's standing on the sideline watching these people kill Stephen. And he's the authority in this deed. The story continues. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He's the first believer to pay the price of his faith through death. And it came at the hands of Saul. This was Saul's pushing. This was his encouraging. He was the leader in that moment. But Saul's persecutions of Christians didn't actually stop there. In Acts 8, it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Stephen's stoning was a catalyst for a nationwide persecution of Christians. Saul's accepting behavior of this act led to more pain and more imprisonment and more death for people who were following Jesus. And Saul was a leader in that. He continued, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul's goal was to destroy the church. He didn't care if you were a man and he didn't care if you were a woman. If you proclaimed Jesus as your Savior, if you proclaimed Jesus as your Messiah, he wanted you in jail. On a side note, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, when I read this, I always wonder why Luke put this in there. Like, Luke, who wrote this book, he could have omitted this part. It wasn't like this was published in real time. It's not a blog, like, I saw this happen today, and everybody gets to read it. 
In fact, the Bible wasn't actually put together for a few hundred years. And so people who had heard stories about Saul and Paul had never really had proof. And Luke could have omitted this from the text. He could have decided, hey, we're going to scrub this part. This part doesn't look good. Eventually, who Paul becomes, people don't need to know about his past. But he leaves the details in there. And he actually doesn't even sugarcoat how bad and harmful Saul was for the church. And I believe the reason why he did this is because it shows us just how big God's grace is. And it shows us just how broken people are and just how much God can use them. And God can even use Saul. The story continues. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, another word or another phrase for the church or the Christian church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Paul's on his way to Damascus. He's on his way to find people who follow Jesus. He's on his way to persecute them. His goal is to put them in jail, to harm them, to stop them from telling other people about the good news of Jesus. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And this is really important because in this moment, it doesn't say that God spoke to him. It actually says that Jesus spoke to him. And this is important because we know that Jesus is no longer on this earth. At this point in time, he's ascended into heaven. But Jesus still stops Saul in his tracks to ask him, why are you doing this? And so Saul ends up being one of the few people to see Jesus after he's no longer on this earth. And so Paul will say, hey, I saw Jesus and this is what happened. But Jesus tells him to go to Damascus. He tells him to continue to go to the city where you're going to persecute Christians. Continue to go there and wait for further instruction. And while he's there, Jesus sends a man named Ananias to go and meet him. And of course, Ananias, a follower of Jesus, is hesitant because he knows how terrible Saul is. He's heard the rumors. And so this is what happens in Acts 9, starting in verse 13. Lord, Ananias said, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And Jesus essentially tells Ananias, I don't care if you think he's unqualified. I don't care if, if he's messed up. I don't care what he's done. I'm choosing him to change the world. Now go get him. And so Ananias did what Jesus said. He met up with Saul, he placed his hands on him, and something like scales fell from his eyes so he could see. And the next thing that Saul did was actually commit his life to Jesus and get baptized. And then Saul got to work. Just a few verses later, Acts 9, verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So the dude doesn't even leave Damascus, right? The place where he's going to hurt Christians, the place where he's going to persecute Christians, the place where he's trying to stop the church from happening, Jesus stops him on his way and says, don't persecute me, don't do this anymore, now go and tell other people about who I am, and that's exactly what he does. He heads there to hurt Christians, he heads there to persecute Christians, and he ends up preaching about Jesus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. 
in this story, one of the first things that we learn about Paul is that your past sins and your past brokenness won't stop God from using you to do big things. And I want to say that again so it can really sink in, because there's a lot of you that believe that your past is too bad for God to show his grace to, and a lot of you feel like your sin is too deep and your brokenness is too far for God to use you. But this story teaches us that your past sins and your past brokenness won't stop God from using you to do big things. Paul was a murderer, but he didn't just murder people, as if that's not bad enough. He murdered Christians in hopes of stopping the advancement of Christianity. Of all the people that God could use, that God could stop and speak to, of all the people that God could choose to bring this mission to more and more people that the church wasn't doing and wasn't successful with, he chose Saul. And the best part about this story is that eventually Saul gets a new name. That's how he's called Paul. And what's beautiful about this is essentially God tells him, it doesn't matter what your past is, I can still use you. And I'm going to give you a new name because your past doesn't define you. And if God can use Paul with his tumultuous past, don't you think God can use you? Your past divorce doesn't mean you can't be a good husband now. Your past impatient and anger as a parent doesn't mean that you can't be a good parent now. Your past brokenness doesn't mean you can't show your friends who Jesus is and what grace looks like. Your past sins don't mean you can't receive grace. Your past mistakes don't mean that you can't be loved and love other people. Your past sins and your past brokenness won't stop God from using you to do big things. But Paul's story doesn't end there. Paul devotes his life to Jesus. He devotes his life to bringing Jesus to the entire known world. And because of him, the church grew. People accepted that free gift of grace because of him. People repented and they were baptized because of him. He started churches and those churches started churches. And Paul was a catalyst for this. And he was the one that God chose to do that. The church as we know it today is different because of Paul. We teach what he taught. We learn how to do church from what he showed other churches. But even though that's true, the rest of Paul's life, he had to deal with the public opinion that he was unqualified. For the rest of his life, he was told that he didn't belong, that he wasn't good enough. We actually get a glimpse of this in his second letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. Check this out, 2 Corinthians 10.7. He writes, you are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. Paul's saying, you might think I'm unqualified. You might think the things that I did are too bad. You might think my sin is too deep. You might think my brokenness is too far. But I belong just as much as anybody. So if you've ever felt like you can't have a relationship with Jesus because of your conflicts, if you ever felt like you didn't fit in at church because everybody seemed so put together and perfect, if you ever felt like the presence of God is the last place you would be welcomed, if you ever come to church with a religious pretense that is much better than your performance, Paul reminds us that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. That it took the same blood, the same beating, the same death that it took to get me in, that it takes to get you in. And that's why Paul's confident. That's why he knows that he belongs. That's why he's saying you can belong before you ever really get it. One thing we say as a church all the time is you can belong before you believe, and you can believe before you behave. You can believe before you ever start truly following Jesus, and that's okay. And that's the essence of the church. 
And Paul's saying no one's disqualified from that. No one says, no one is kicked out. Everybody belongs. But if we're being honest, the church doesn't always feel that way. And I think sometimes the essence of the church needs to be restated. We've made the church look so much like a country club. We've made the church so exclusive. We've made the church a place where you have to become something in order to belong. And that might be how a lot of you feel that church looks like, or that might be the experience that you've had. But that's not why Jesus died. Jesus died so that we could belong, where you know that you are unqualified and still welcomed. Paul continues to write in 2 Corinthians, So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you in my letters, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. I mean, how real is this? How real does this feel in our own lives? This is why I laugh when people tell me that they don't think the Bible is relevant. They'll say, I don't think it can teach me anything. I think it's outdated, that we can't learn anything from a book that's a, thousand, or a few thousand years old. But this feels relevant to me. I get this. I know what Paul's saying here. He's talking about comparison and competition and commendation. And Paul's saying it's not wise. That our desire to pick and choose who is unqualified based on our own standards is foolish. But the thing I want to focus on in this is actually verse 10. And Paul writes something that, to be honest, I've I've read this a few times and it never stuck out to me until now. In 2 Corinthians 7.10 he says this, For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. He writes, for some say... For some say, even Paul dealt with this. Even Paul dealt with people talking about him. Even Paul dealt with people who said, you're not good enough. And we know what that feels like. We hear those voices all the time, and we're always going to hear those voices. They don't go away. And if we're being honest, we don't need other people telling us that we're unqualified. The voice inside of our head likes to do it all the time. And so Paul says, hey, I know what people are saying about me. I know what they say. They say I'm unqualified. They say I'm unimpressive. They say I'm unworthy and unskilled and untrained. And we actually know that this is something that Paul wrestles with because he mentions it again in the next chapter. In 2 Corinthians 11, 5, and 6, he actually says, I may not be trained as a speaker, but I have knowledge. And you don't write this over and over and over again unless this is something that you're struggling with. And Paul's wrestling with it. Paul was unqualified. He had weaknesses. He had shortcomings. The man who wrote one quarter of the New Testament, the second biggest human contributor to the New Testament in whole, who took the gospel to new frontiers, who was chosen by God, had a weakness. He wasn't a good speaker. He was unimpressive. In fact, during that time, people would often compare Paul to another man named Apollos. Apollos was another preacher during that time, and he was better than Paul. And so you'd have two schools. You have people say, I'm with Paul, and you have other people that say, I'm with Apollos. But the second thing that we see in the life of Paul is that you may feel unqualified because of your shortcomings, but God can move through your weaknesses. And I think this is such a powerful revelation when you consider that Paul wrote a quarter of the New Testament. 
Because I find myself wondering, if Paul had been a better speaker, would he have picked up his pen and written all those letters? I wonder if Paul could have preached like Apollos, would we have 2 Corinthians? Would we have Romans? Would we have what he wrote in Ephesians 3.20 when he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is a work within us. Paul picked up his pen, and perhaps because he couldn't preach like Apollos, through God, his weakness became a gift. The words that you read today that Paul wrote may not even be on the page if he, if he would have been a better preacher. But it was because he couldn't preach like Apollos that he wrote like Paul. His weakness was a gift that keeps on giving. How many Bible verses can you quote that Apollos wrote? None. But Apollos could preach. Apollos was impressive. No doubt he said things that were profound. No doubt he said things that changed their lives. But if Paul didn't write about Apollos in his letters, would we even know that he existed? Paul couldn't preach like Apollos, so it forced him to sit down. And he had to find a way to take his weakness and turn it into his gift. Because he was unqualified, we can still read his words today. I want to share a story with you all, and it's one of my some say moments, right? Like you have moments in your life where you hear that voice or you hear that person, whether it's the voice inside your own head or it's your family or your friends. I want to share with you one of those moments that I've, I've struggled with for a very long time. But I do this not because I want sympathy. And so this isn't so you can come up to me lobby and say good things to me. In fact, I'd rather hide in the corner anyways. But I tell this story because I want you all to know that I've been there, and I get that. So church planning is weird. I've talked about that before, but one of the weirdest things that my wife and I experienced when moving toward planting was we had to go through this thing called church planters assessment. Now, not all church planters go through that, but the organization that helped us start said that this is, a, this is required and you have to do this. And this assessment was intense. Think of it as fight club for pastors. Technically, I'm not allowed to talk about it. No, really, I had to sign a contract saying I wouldn't tell people about the details of it so that other pastors going through it wouldn't have an upper hand. And so this assessment is three days, and during that time, they put you through tests, they have you do group work, they have you preach, they have you take quizzes, they make you talk to a psychologist. And the entire time, a group of ministers that you don't know are watching you. They're taking notes, and they're evaluating you. I told you, it's intense. It's terrible. Also, for those of you who have ever been nervous about me as a pastor, don't worry, we passed, so you're good. Some people are like, oh, where's the story going? In fact, we passed, but both Ray and I did really well. So part of it is if you're married, you bring your spouse, and they have to go through all the same tests as everybody else. And so there were 12 church planners and 12 wives that were there. And throughout the weekend, Ray and I finished in the top of every assessment. And this actually meant that Ray, my wife, tested higher than the 11 other pastors who were in that assessment. She actually walked away with the MVP of that weekend. So if you want to know why this church is good, it's my wife. So the last thing we had to do that weekend was sit down with these evaluators in order to figure out, are you going to give us the green light to plant this church? And we knew how well we did. We knew it the whole time. They kept telling us, you're doing well, you're excelling, this is going to be easy for you. And so we went in with confidence. But as we, as we sat in the room... They didn't really talk to us about how well we did. In fact, the one thing they wanted to talk about over and over and over again was the fact that I'm an introvert. And to be honest, this wasn't new to me. I struggled with this throughout college and high school. I was very standoffish, and I couldn't figure out like, why I act this way. And I realized that I'm an introvert. This has led me to counseling, to reading a lot of books, 
to try and figure out how can I, an introvert in this world, be successful and succeed. But these evaluators proceeded to tell me that they thought I was too introverted to be a good pastor, that they were hesitant to give us a thumbs up because of that, that all the best church planners are extroverts, and I was incapable of forcing myself to be one. And so for 30 minutes, we just listened as they told us, you're unimpressive, you're unqualified. I'm not going to lie, this pissed me off. (laughs) After the entire assessment, this is how they saw me. This is what they decided that they wanted to focus on. They wanted to focus on my weaknesses, one of many, but one that I'm aware of. I'm aware of how being an introvert impacts this church. I'm aware of how being an introvert impacts my friends and my family, and I get that. But what these pastors said is a weakness. I personally have seen God turn into a strength. Because I'm an introvert, I actually spend more time thinking about what's best for this church Because I'm an introvert, I have moments with myself trying to figure out how do we move this church forward. But the other part of it is because I'm an introvert, I realized that in order to plan a healthy church and to do a good job, I had to find people who were extroverts. Because if I was trying to be an extrovert, I was just going to nap all the time. It wasn't going to work. In fact, if you know me well enough or you're part of one of your teams, you know that after Sunday, I just go home and sit in like a dark corner for a few hours. But I realized in order to do well with this church, I needed to find people around me that could pick me up. That would say, hey, I get that you're unqualified in this way, but we're going to do this for you. This is one of the reasons why we ask people to move up here to be a part of this church. We thought, hey, you're extroverted. Do you like meeting people? Go meet people so I can talk to them secretly later. (laughs) That's why CT is part of this team, the guy who did the, the MC spot, because he's an extrovert. And if you walk into this church, you know he's outside hugging, talking, high fiving every single person that comes in because that's where he gets his energy. And so what I've learned is that I may feel unqualified because of my weaknesses. But God can move through those. Because God uses broken people to do big things. And that's the story that we see over and over and over again in the Bible. The Bible is a book full of people who are unqualified. And there are people that God used to change this world. To change families. To change religion as we know it. To change how outcasts were treated. And to change our lives. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was unwanted. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stutter. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair, which we know is terrible. (laughs) Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were told that they were too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked, which is weird. (laughs) Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. Thomas was a doubter. Paul was a murderer. Sarah was barren. James and John were self-righteous. And Lazarus was dead. And so when you sit back and think that you are too broken, and when you sit back and think you are too unqualified, Know that God can do big things through you. Know that God can do great things through you. And when you struggle with that, think of Paul, a murderer whose sole goal was stopping this from happening. And even after he saw redemption and even after he saw Jesus, he was told from time to time that he was unimpressive. 
And if God can use Paul to change the world, he can use you because we're all unqualified. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that, um, that we don't have to be perfect to be used by you. God, that we don't have to be perfect to, to be a good spouse or a good friend. God, that we don't have to be perfect to be a good follower of you. God, that you, you, you look at our past and, and you look at what other people say, and, and even though we feel unqualified and people tell us all the time, our society reminds us daily, God, you still love us. And you still want us to do big things. So God, I just pray today uh, as a church that we recognize that we're unqualified. And God, that's okay. Because you can do more with us than we can do with ourselves. God, I pray this week as we wrestle with that and we hear that voice in our head that some say, some say, some say, God, that, that we understand that we have weaknesses, that we do fall short, but through you, we can do so much more. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.